Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Previously on Truth and Justice. Did you hear him screaming when he was in pain? We know that. He suffered a lot. I need you to help me. I need you to help me. I need you to help me on this. Can you help me? I need you to help me. Sandra, can you help me? I need help, Sandra. Please help me. Screaming after screaming after screaming, even pain. I need help. Help me, Sandra. Help me. Cousin's a nice guy. He went through a lot of pain. Help me. Sandra, I need help. Please help me, Sandra. Sandra, help me. Sandra, I need help. I didn't hear anything. Stop already. I need help, Sandra. I need help. Help me. Cause of death, multiple sharp force injuries and blunt force trauma of the head. Manner of death, homicide. The next piece of the puzzle in the murder of Jim Melgar is the autopsy report. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whose is the tea? Oh, that's for me, thanks. And the fish fingers. Me, please. Over here, you two. Lift. Dobby's restaurants have great deals on lots of tasty products. That's it. Mind your backs, please. <laughs> Making them feel even greater. Left a bit careful of that. So kids' meals feel larger than dining tables. Set it down gently. Gently. Whoa. Find great value every day in store, like kids eat free. After all, spring's a big deal at Dobby's Garden Centres. Anything else? Have you got a bigger fork?
history. This Hispanic male positively identified by fingerprint comparison as 52-year-old Jamie Estuardo Melgar was pronounced dead at the scene of 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court, Houston, Texas at 4.47 p.m. on December 23, 2012. Autopsy. The autopsy is performed at the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences by Forensic Pathology Fellow Kristen Escobar Alvarenga, MD, under the direct supervision of Catherine Hayden Pinary, MD, pursuant to Article 49.25 Texas Code of Criminal Procedure, beginning at 9.30 a.m. on December 24, 2012. Dr. Pinary performed the autopsy on Jim Melgar the morning after his body was discovered in his closet. Her report is very long and very thorough. It will be posted on our website for your review. I'm not going to read the report word for word from beginning to end, given its length. Rather, I'll be bouncing back and forth between direct quotes and summaries. Throughout the summaries, I'll be converting the medical jargon into plain language, so hopefully everyone can follow along with the description of the injuries. In this episode, we're only going to be covering the external injuries, which I can promise you will be enough to thoroughly fry your brain. We'll break down the remainder of the report in next week's episode. Now let's begin with the introductory paragraphs. I'll quote directly from the report here. Clothing and personal effects. When first viewed, the body is nude and covered with blood. A rectangular-shaped plastic container is in the body bag between the legs. No personal property or jewelry is received with the body. The plastic container is submitted as evidence. Noteworthy here is the plastic container. The container was found on the floor between Jim's legs. It's unclear why it was placed in the body bag when none of the other items found on or near his body were. In the crime scene photos, it's hard to tell what the container is. One theory posed by listeners regarding the plastic container is that it came from the packaging of the Canon camera in the closet. There's a Canon box and some corresponding paperwork spread out on both sides of Jim's body. Next, the report indicates there is no sign of any medical interventions, meaning that the paramedics on scene pronounced Jim dead and made no attempt to revive him. Now back to the report. External appearance. The body is received in a gray body bag and is identified as Jamie Melgay by an identification tag that encircles the left great toe. A morgue tracking device encircles the right first through third toes. Paper bags, which are bloody, cover the hands. Photographs, fingerprints, and radiographs of the head and torso are taken. The body is that of a normally developed, thin Hispanic male whose appearance is compatible with the given age of 52 years. The body weighs 125 pounds and measures 67 inches in length. The body is cold subsequent to refrigeration. Rigor mortis is symmetric and fully developed in the jaw and extremities. The posterior pink-red lividity still slightly blanches. The body is well-preserved and not embalmed. The head and neck exhibit trauma, which is described below. The scalp hairs are black, short, and straight, measuring approximately 3 to 4 inches in maximum length. No facial hair is present. The irides appear brown and the corneas are slightly cloudy. No conjunctival petechia are present on the right. The left lower palpable conjunctiva has a few petechia. The earlobes have no piercings. The nasal bone and nasal septum are intact to palpation. The lips are dry. The teeth are natural and in fair condition. 
The torso exhibits trauma, which is described below. The abdomen is flat and soft. No masses are palpable through the abdominal wall. The external genitalia are those of an uncircumcised male with descended testicles. The anus and perineum are unremarkable. The extremities exhibit trauma, which is described below. The fingernails are short and have dried blood under them. Dried blood is on the palms and backs of each hand. The toenails are short and clean. No long bone fractures are visible or palpable. One thing of note here is the petechia in the left eye. As described, it's minimal, but it still should be noted. Petechia is the rupturing of small blood vessels in the conjunctiva of the eyes. Oftentimes, it's an indicator of strangulation. However, that process typically will result in bilateral and well-developed petechia. Nonetheless, this could be an indicator of a strain for oxygen while still alive. Now back to the report. Identifying Marks and Scars A 3 8 inch horizontal scar is on the back of the left upper arm. A 3 quarter inch curvilinear scar is on the back of the left elbow. Evidence of Injury The body exhibits multiple sharp and blunt force injuries. For the purposes of injury classification, stab wounds are injuries which extend deeper than the length on the skin, and incise wounds are injuries which are longer on the skin than the depth of penetration into the tissues. The wounds are arbitrarily numbered without regards to chronological sequence or severity of injury. All directions are given with reference to standard anatomical planes with the body measured in the horizontal position. This is where Dr. Paneri begins a detailed analysis of every injury. And there are a lot of injuries. As stated in the report, any sharp force injury that is longer on the skin than it plunges into the body will be considered an incised wound. If the depth of the wound is deeper than it is wide on the skin, then it is categorized as a stab wound. With that being said, make sure you note that just because it is categorized as an incised wound doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't a stab wound. It only means that the skin injury is wider than the depth. Throughout this process, I'll be summarizing the doctor's findings, but I'll also be maintaining her numbering system for later reference. And again, just as a reminder, the full document is available on our website for your review. Part one of the wound breakdown is the sharp force injury section. Then these wounds are further subdivided by areas of the body. Part one, section A, covers sharp force wounds to the torso. In this category, wound number one is listed as an incised wound of the neck slash chest. Item IW1. This wound consists of two cuts extending at an angle from the front of the neck over the collarbone and towards the chest. One is three and a quarter inches long, and the other is four and a half inches long. The report doesn't indicate a direction, but the pictures show that these two cuts are parallel to each other and extend from the midline of the neck toward the left side of Jim's chest. Neither wound caused any internal trauma, meaning they did not sever any major arteries or veins, and Paneri describes them as superficial. Essentially, these are two scratches to Jim's upper chest that caused no serious damage. Wound number two is listed as incised wound of the left upper chest, item IW2. This is a tiny cut on Jim's upper left chest area, just below his collarbone. It's only an eighth of an inch on the skin and only a sixteenth of an inch deep into the skin. 
It's described as superficial. Number three is listed as stab wound of the right upper chest. Item SW3. This is a stab wound a couple inches up and to the right of Jim's right nipple. It has one blunt edge on the upper right and one tapered edge on the lower left. This would be indicating a single-edge knife blade. The cut on the skin is one and three-quarters of an inch wide, and the wound penetrates two and a quarter inches into the chest cavity. The blade penetrates the chest muscles and the right second rib costal cartilage. This stab was made straight into Jim's chest. No left-right or vertical deviation. Based on the measurements, it's my opinion that this wound would be consistent with the chef's knife that was found in the tub. Wound number four is listed as stab wound of the right upper chest. Item SW4. This wound is one and a half inches to the right of stab wound three. The cut to the skin is one and a half inches wide with a depth of three inches. The upper right end of the wound has an indeterminate edge due to drying, but the lower left edge is blunt, again indicating a single-edge knife. The blade penetrated the chest muscles and the right fourth rib costal cartilage and continues into the upper, middle, and lower lobes of the right lung. The sac around the lung, known as the pleural cavity, contains 350 milliliters of liquid blood. The right lung is collapsed. Essentially, the sac encasing the lung filled with blood, causing pressure on the lung itself. Without immediate medical intervention, this wound could eventually be fatal. However, death in this case would not come rapidly. A collapsed lung takes time to kill. The angle of entry on this wound is front to back and right to left with no vertical deviation. This wound also has abrasions on both ends of it, basically scratches. The abrasion on the lower left of the wound connects it to stab wound number five. Wound number five is listed similarly to numbers three and four. Stab wound of the right upper chest. Item SW5. This stab wound is just to the right of number four. The tear on the skin measures one and one quarter inch wide, and the depth of penetration is one and five eighths of an inch. This wound is shallower than the other two stabs in close proximity to it. At one and five eighths of an inch deep, no rib cartilage nor the lungs were punctured. The upper edge of the wound is tapered and the lower edge is blunt, again indicating a single edge knife. The angle of entry is front to back, left to right, and slightly downward. Stab wounds number three, four, and five are all very close in proximity. It's worth noting here that the points of entry on all three vary. Number three is stabbed straight into the chest with the blade edge of the knife pointed down into the left. Number four is stabbed in from the right to the left and the sharp edge of the blade is angled up and to the right. And stab number five is stabbed in from above at a downward angle and the sharp edge of the blade is up. What's significant here is that even though all three stabs are right next to each other, it seems unlikely that they occurred at the same time. We have three different orientations of the blade, and the stabs were made from three different angles. These were not frenzied stabbings. In my opinion, they likely occurred at different phases of the fight.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Wound number six is listed as stab wound of anterior chest. Item SW6. This stab wound is located near the midline of the chest, about an inch lower than number five. The tear on the skin is one and one quarter inch wide, and the depth of penetration is also one and one quarter of an inch. The upper right edge is tapered, and the lower left is blunt. Again, a single edge knife is indicated. This stab penetrates muscle tissue and cuts into the left side of the sternum. The angle of penetration is front to back, right to left, and slightly downward. Number seven is listed as incised wound of the anterior chest. Item IW7. While this wound is categorized as an incised wound, it's later described as a stab. The reason being that it's a half inch wide vertical cut on the skin and only penetrates into the body a quarter of an inch. Due to the parameters laid out at the beginning of the report, it has to be categorized as incised. However, the language in the report makes it clear that this was a very shallow stab wound, which reads as though it's directly over the sternum. Quote, on the anterior chest in the midline, end quote. That would be the sternum area. And, quote, after perforating the skin, the stab sequentially penetrates the underlying soft tissue, end quote. Wound number eight is listed as incised wound of left side of abdomen, IW8. Again, although the report criteria identify this as an incised wound, the narrative clearly describes it as a stab wound. The stab left a gaping wound one and five-eighths of an inch in width, but penetrated only one and a quarter inch deep. This wound, however, likely would have eventually been fatal. The blade of the knife penetrates the abdominal wall, fat, and muscle, and, quote, completely transects the costal cartilage of the left 8th and ninth ribs, end quote. The path then continues to perforate the diaphragm and, quote, completely perforates the left lobe of the liver through a defect that measures one and a half inch width, end quote. The direction of the stab is front to back, left to right, with no significant vertical deviation. This wound is a little difficult to determine the type of knife used. The edges are irregular, and there are three very small, less than a sixteenth of an inch incised wounds extending off the lower angle. Basically, this wound is a mess. Number nine is listed as stab wound of the abdomen, SW9. This is a very small, shallow stab wound, quarter inch wide and a quarter inch deep. It is located on the midline of the abdomen. The upper left end of the stab is blunt, 
and the lower right is tapered. The angle is front to back, and only skin and fat were perforated. Wound number 10 is also listed as stab wound of the abdomen, SW10. This is a stab just right of center, and just below the xiphoid process, the little bony structure that extends off the lower end of the sternum. The wound measures one and a quarter inch in width and is one and a half inches deep. The knife entered Jim's abdomen at an angle, and the upper left edge is tapered and the lower right is blunt. Again, this indicates a single-bladed knife like the chef's knife. The path of the blade was upward and slightly right to left. The point of the blade entered Jim's skin below the rib cage, but passes through the cartilage between ribs 8 and 9 and penetrates the pericardial sac, the membrane that surrounds the heart. The cut in the sac measures a half inch wide and is blunt on one end and sharp on the other. Although the heart itself was not punctured, the pericardial sac was filled with 80 milliliters of brown-red fluid, and the hemorrhage was along the thoracic spine. In my opinion, this wound would have eventually been fatal, but not immediately. Also, in my personal opinion, this wound also would be consistent with the chef's knife that was discovered in the bathtub. Number 11. Incise wound of the abdomen. IW11. Here we have another stab wound that's categorized as an incise wound due to the width of the skin defect. The wound measures 2 inches on the skin. It's a vertical cut on the upper left quadrant of the abdomen. The top edge is tapered and the bottom edge is blunt. While the stab only penetrates 7 eighths of an inch, it, quote, penetrates all the way through the left lobe of the liver through an approximate 1.5 inch defect which does not taper and has slightly irregular angles, end quote. The direction of the stab was upward, hence the 2 inch cut on the skin. Number 12 is an incised wound of lower chest slash abdomen, IW12. This one is a superficial 5-inch wound that extends from the left side of his chest down to his abdomen. Even though the wound is superficial, Paneri does describe some interesting characteristics. Sparing you all of the medical terminology, there are a lot of small abrasions and tiny cuts extending off of this 5-inch gash. Wound number 13 is listed as Stab Wound of the Abdomen, SW13. Stab number 13 delivers yet another blow to Jim's liver. This one is just right of center on his abdomen. The wound is 1 and 3 eighths of an inch wide and 2 and 3 quarters inch deep. The upper edge is tapered and the lower is blunt. The path of the blade is described as follows. Quote, After perforating the skin and subcutaneous tissues of the abdominal wall, the stab perforates the diaphragm and into the liver at the falciform ligament with two paths. Both paths extend all the way through the liver and form a wide V-shape. The wound path tapers, measuring a half inch to three quarters of an inch. The direction of the stab is front to back, upward, and without significant right to left deflection. Hemorrhage is in the right periadrenal fat and in the head of the pancreas. End quote. That's it for the sharp force wounds of the torso. 13 wounds consisting of 7 stabs and 6 incise wounds, although at least 3 of the incise wounds were described as stabs in the narrative. Practically speaking, there were 10 stabs and 3 cuts to Jim's torso. His liver was punctured multiple times, 2 stabs through his diaphragm, hemorrhaging on the pleural space around his lungs, the pericardium around his heart, and his pancreas. 
The totality of these 13 sharp force wounds would have resulted in Jim's death without immediate medical intervention. But none of these injuries, nor the sum of all of them, would have resulted in a quick death or even a quick loss of consciousness. These wounds would take time to kill. Next, the report moves on to sharp force injuries of the head and neck, and there are nine of them. Number one is listed as incised wound of right frontal scalp. Item IW14. This is a cut on the front of Jim's forehead, just right of center of the hairline. The cut is two inches in length. The wound resulted in a subscapular hemorrhage, but made no visible marks on the skull. Number two, incise wound of top of head, IW15. This is a horizontal cut to the top of Jim's head at the midline. The length of the cut is an inch and a half. The right end of the cut is forked and the edges are abraded. The cut is accompanied by blunt trauma characteristics with a one and a half inch by half inch abrasion on the skin around the wound. The wound caused subscapular hemorrhaging and cut through the fibrous tissue surrounding the cranium, but there are no visible defects on the skull. Number three, incise wound of crown of head, IW16. This cut is perpendicular to the last one, which was IW15. It's just to the right of center on the top of Jim's head and is a one and one, the report says six, but one six is not a typical measurement of inches. But nonetheless, the report says one and one six inch vertically oriented cut. This wound also has blunt force characteristics in the form of a one and a quarter inch by half inch abrasion on the skin around the wound. There are no visible defects on the skull in relation to this wound either. Number four, incise wound of right posterior scalp, IW17. This is a seven eighths of an inch vertical cut to the back of Jim's head, just right of center. The upper end is forked, just like the other two wounds, and it also has blunt characteristics in the form of a one-inch by quarter-inch abrasion on the skin along the right wound edge. And again, there is no visible damage to the skull. Number five, incise wound of right posterior parietal scalp, IW18. This wound is just to the right of number four and has similar characteristics to wounds IW15 and IW17. It's a one-inch cut with the upper edge being forked and also has similar blunt force characteristics as the other two wounds. Number six, incise wound of left forehead, IW19. This is a horizontal one-and-a-half-inch cut to the left side of Jim's forehead. The right edge is tapered and the left end is blunt. There is no blunt trauma associated with this injury. The blade cut through the scalp, fibrous tissues, and superficially cut the frontal bone of the skull. Number 7. Incise wound of left forehead, IW20. This cut is a half inch below number 6 on the left side of Jim's forehead. It's a half inch angled cut with both ends being tapered. There's an eighth of an inch abrasion on the upper edge, and this wound caused subscapular hemorrhaging, but no skull fractures were present. Number 8. Incise wound of right neck, IW21. This is one of the ugliest wounds on Jim's body, but in reality, it's a superficial wound. 
The wound appears to be a single large gash on the right side of his neck. However, the doctor's examination shows it's actually a cluster of cuts. The wounds that penetrated the skin measure one and three quarters of an inch and two and a half inches. There are also several three quarter inch to one inch superficial trailing cuts that extend off the main cuts towards the back of his neck. And there's also a three eighths of an inch, the doctor describes it as train, that extends superficially towards the front and upward towards a small superficial cut on Jim's chin. This very large and grotesque looking wound to the neck only severed skin and muscle. There's no damage to any arteries or veins. Number 9. Incised Wound of Right Jawline IW22 This is a small, 3 eighths of an inch cut to Jim's right jaw. From the bottom of the wound, another half-inch cut extends perpendicularly toward the back of Jim's head. Essentially, this wound looks like a right angle. That concludes the sharp force injuries to the head and neck. A large gash on the right side of Jim's neck, a small triangular-shaped cut on his jaw, and seven cuts to the head, three of which are in close proximity to each other, and all consist of having forked edges. At this point, we're 22 wounds in, and with number 23, Dr. Perini moves on to sharp force injuries of the extremities, and she lists nine such injuries in this report. In the sharp force wounds to the extremity section, wound number one is listed as incised wound of the palm of the right hand. Item number IW23. On the palm of the right hand near the thumb is a one and a half inch curved gaping wound with exposed muscles and tendons. Running parallel to this wound are two other incised wounds that are both one and seven eighths of an inch long. So these are longer, but not as deep. One of the wounds has a small eighth inch incision running perpendicular off the end. These are clearly defensive wounds. The primary incision here is deep. It cut Jim down to his tendons. We typically see these type of wounds when a subject is attempting to block a stab from a knife. Number two, incise wound of medial left wrist, IW24. This cut to the left wrist is one inch long and curved. Next to it is a three quarter inch superficial cut. Only skin and muscle were severed with these cuts. There's no damage to any tendons, bones, veins, or arteries. And again, this wound appears to be defensive in nature. Number three, incised wound of right index finger, IW25. And here we have another defensive wound. This is a half-inch crescent-shaped wound to the back of the forefinger near the tip. Adjacent to this wound are two 1 inch superficial incised wounds. Only subcutaneous tissues were severed. Number four, incise wound of right hand, IW26. On the outside edge of the right hand, on the pinky side, Jim has a 7 8 inch incision that cuts through only subcutaneous fat. Adjacent to this wound are two smaller incise wounds, measuring 1 16th of an inch and 1 8 inch, respectively. And again, these would be defensive wounds. Number five, incised wound of the palm of the right hand, IW27. This is a vertical quarter-inch cut to Jim's right palm near the wrist. The cut is an eighth of an inch deep and did not damage any veins, arteries, or tendons. This wound again appears to be defensive in nature. Number six, 
Incise wound of the right wrist, IW28. On the underside of the right wrist, we have a small 3 inch superficial cut. It's another defensive wound. Number seven, incise wound of the right forearm, IW29. This is a one and a half inch superficial crescent-shaped cut on the inside of Jim's right forearm. Number eight, incise wound of right shoulder, IW30. On the top of Jim's right shoulder on the trap muscle is a one and five eighths inch superficial cut. And number nine, incise wound of left ankle, IW31. On the inside of his ankle is a horizontal quarter-inch superficial cut. Only skin is damaged. That's it for Sharp Force injuries. A grand total of 31. Included in these 31 wounds are 7 that are categorized as stab wounds and 3 incise wounds that were described as stabs. 13 of the Sharp Force injuries were to the front of Jim's chest and abdomen. Six were defensive wounds on the right hand, wrist, and forearm, and two appeared to be defensive wounds on the left hand. Jim was also cut on the head seven times. Some of these wounds clearly came from a knife, however, we also have the three wounds with the forked ends that were accompanied by abrasions. These could have come from a knife, but also could be skin tears that resulted from being struck by a blunt object. The totality of these sharp force wounds points to a disorganized attack. The unsub clearly had difficulty controlling Jim. They were never able to deliver a deep, fatal blow. Jim did in fact die from these injuries, but there's nothing here that would have immediately incapacitated him. The knife attack clearly came from the front, with the overwhelming majority of the wounds on his right side. Even six out of the seven defensive cuts to Jim's hands and arms are also on the right side. The orientation and directionality of the stabs also tells us that the fight was dynamic. There were a lot of moving parts. For example, let's look at the four-stab cluster in the middle right of Jim's chest. Four-stab wounds all from a single-bladed knife. SW3 has the blade edge of the knife pointed down and to the left. SW4, up and to the right. And SW5, straight up. And SW6, up and to the right. Number three and four are oriented in exactly opposite directions. The attacker stabbed either from a different position or had the knife oriented differently in their hand for each stab. Either way, these two wounds did not happen in quick succession. Then we have all the incise wounds to both the front and the back of Jim's head. And somehow he's also cut on his ankle. Given the depth of the wounds to his torso, Combined with all the cuts on his arms and hands, it seems as though Jim was able to keep his attacker from ever plunging the knife deep into his chest. So here's a hypothesis, and I'm just spitballing here. But think about someone attacking you from the front with a knife. What would your instinct be? Now, I'm sure the answer will vary amongst all of you, so I'll just give you my response to that. My instinct would be to get control of the attacker's arms. Now, some might say, cover the chest to try and block the blows. And maybe that's true with some people, but I just don't see it that way. At least not for me. For me, I know that I can't just keep blocking forever. At some point, I have to turn the tables. So for me, I would try to grab the attacker by the arms or wrist and get control back. (laughs) 
Given the fact that so many of the injuries are on Jim's right side, it stands to reason that the stabs came from the unsub's left hand. Now, again, just a hypothesis. Maybe Jim was able to get a hold of the attacker's right wrist with his left hand. Remember, they're facing each other. The killer's left hand is swinging a knife, so it's more difficult to grab a hold of. He keeps trying to catch the unsub's left wrist, resulting in the six cuts to his right arm and hand. He isn't able to get full control of it, but he's able to slow down the blows, not allowing the knife to plunge in too deep. Now, if this hypothesis is anywhere close to accurate, and who knows if it is, then both of the attacker's arms would be occupied, to say the least. Which then brings me to question the three strange wounds on the top and back of Jim's head. But at this point, we only have part of the picture. Next, we're going to move on to the remaining 20 injuries. The blunt force wounds. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Part 2 of the report covers blunt force injuries. The doctor begins with the head and neck. Now, the blunt force portion of the autopsy is written in narrative form, not in a point-by-point description of each wound. So I'll just read this part directly from the report. External. A half-inch purple contusion is on the bridge of the nose. Two quarter-inch purple contusions are on the upper eyelid by the lateral corner of the left eye. A 5-16-inch dry abrasion is on the left side of the forehead above the eyebrow. A 1-inch contusion is on the left side of the back of the neck. The helices of both ears have red-purple contusions. A cluster of half-inch to 1-3-quarter-inch red contusions are associated with a 3-quarter-inch abrasion on the right occipital scalp. Internal A large subscalpular hematoma overlies the right side of the occipital bone overlying a linear skull fracture which internally extends towards the foramen magnum. Small linear fractures involve the right orbital plate near the cribform plate and the left orbital plate near the orbital ridge frontal bone. Patchy subarachnoid hemorrhage overlies the frontal poles. Fracture contusions and subarachnoid hemorrhage overlie the inferior right parietal occipital lobe. So there's a lot going on here. Jim has multiple bruises and abrasions to his face, ears, and neck. And more notable to me is the, quote, cluster of bruises on the right side of the back of his head. The theory that Jim injured and cut the back of his head by falling back against the closet shelf has been briefly discussed on our follow-up episodes. 
Now, that might explain the cuts mentioned earlier, but this cluster of bruises is a different story. I don't see anything in the crime scene photos that looks like it could result in a cluster of wounds in that area. And people don't typically fall backward repeatedly against the same object. When I read cluster of small bruises, I think knuckles. Could these bruises be the result of a blow from a fist? Internally, Jim suffered from subscapular hematomas, multiple skull fractures, and brain hemorrhaging. And that's all on his head. But let's not lose sight of the bruising on his face. Bruising that resulted in fractures of the orbital bones, the eye sockets, on both sides. Aside from the 31 cuts and stabs, Jim was badly beaten in the face and head, causing serious damage to his skull, brain, and facial bones. And at this point, we need to start asking ourselves two questions. How would these injuries all translate back to the attacker's hands? And how many hands does this attacker have? The blunt force injuries don't stop with Jim's head and face. The next section I'm going to read to you from the report is the summary of the injuries to his torso. From the report. Torso. A one-inch blue-purple contusion is just below the right clavicle. A two-and-a-half-inch by one-and-a-half-inch blue-green-red contusion is on the right anterior chest, near the axilla. An area of pallor sparring of lividity is on the left buttock with a central five-and-a-half-inch area of superficial abrasion. A cluster of eighth-inch to quarter-inch purple contusions is on the left lower back near the midline. A one-inch and a one-and-a-half-inch blue contusion are on the lower back near the midline just above the buttocks. So, we have a large area of bluish bruising on Jim's upper right chest and collarbone, and bruising and abrasions to his buttocks, which could be caused by a fall to the floor, and another, quote, cluster of small bruises on his lower back. Now, lastly, the autopsy covers blunt force injuries to Jim's extremities. From the report. External. Two faint one-and-a-half-inch blue contusions are on top of the right shoulder. A three-sixteenths-inch dry abrasion and a half-inch pink-red contusion are on the lateral left shoulder. Two faint red one-and-a-half-inch linear contusions and a one-and-a-half-inch green-blue contusion are on top of the left shoulder. A one-inch dry abrasion with adjacent one-and-three-quarter-inch pink-red abraded contusion is on the back of the right upper arm. A quarter-inch abrasion is on the back of the right elbow. A half-inch red contusion is on the postural lateral right wrist. A five-eighths-inch red contusion is on the postural medial right wrist. A three-eighths-inch red contusion is on the back of the right hand near the wrist. A three-quarter-inch red contusion is on the lateral right wrist. An approximate one-and-a-half-inch red contusion is on the medial right wrist. A half-inch purple contusion and a quarter-inch abrasion are on the anterior right knee. A one-and-a-half-inch purple contusion is on the anterior right shin. A quarter-inch red contusion is on the anterior right ankle. A three-quarter-inch green-purple-red contusion is on the medial right ankle. A quarter-inch green contusion is on the medial right ankle. A half-inch purple contusion is on top of the right foot. A three-quarter-inch abrasion is on the anterior left knee. 
A quarter-inch red contusion is on the proximal left shin. A quarter-inch red contusion is on the distal left thigh. A three-and-a-quarter-inch purple contusion is on the back of the left shoulder. A three-quarter-inch red contusion is on the back of the left upper arm. A one-and-a-half-inch red contusion is on the back of the left elbow. A one-inch purple contusion, a one-inch blue contusion, and a two-and-a-half-inch blue contusion are on the posterolateral left hip. A one-sixteenth-inch abrasion is on the back of the left hand at the base of the pinky finger. Two half-inch blue contusions are on the back of the left hand along the pinky finger side. Faint punctate and one-sixteenth-inch linear abrasions are on the posterior medial left wrist. A quarter-inch abrasion is on the posterior medial left wrist overlying a bony prominence. An irregular area of indentation and linear lividity is on the posterior lateral left ankle. A three-quarter inch green contusion is on the lateral left ankle. A half-inch abrasion is on the back of the left ankle. And lastly, a half-inch purple contusion is on the back of the right shoulder. All right, did you get all that? That was a lot of bruises all over Jim's body. And if you don't want to take down notes from all those different injuries I just listed... All that is on page 10 of the autopsy report on our website. In the extremities, we see a lot more blunt force injuries to Jim's posterior side than in the front. His left hand still remains without many injuries. All the bruising on the left wrist is to the pinky finger side. A potential explanation, continuing with my earlier hypothesis, could be that Jim had a hold of the attacker's right wrist with his left hand. I remember the filing cabinet is just to the left of Jim's body. Perhaps the attacker was banging his hand and wrist into the filing cabinet in an attempt to loosen his grip. Earlier, we discussed all of the cuts on the palm and inside of Jim's right arm and hand. In the blunt force section, we find a lot of bruising to the back of his right hand, wrist, and lower forearm. One possibility here is that he was using the back of his hand and forearm to block the blows delivered to the right side of his torso. Of course, that's just a possibility, but what we really need to be thinking about, again, is how would these injuries translate back to the attacker's hands, wrists, and arms? There's no question that Jim was using his hands and arms to block the attacker's blows in one way or another. The bruising that exists on the bony structures of his arms and wrists should be reciprocated onto the object that made the contact, causing the bruises. Basically, two people don't bang their arms and wrists together, and only one of them ends up bruised. So think about this for a minute. Imagine an arm swinging a knife toward your chest. You hold up your arm to block the blow. Your wrists make contact, stopping the knife from plunging into your chest. Your wrists are bruised from the blow. Wouldn't the attacker's wrists be bruised too? Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com also created our Season 6 logo. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com. 
And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Baking pastries at 5 and open at 6. 100th cappuccino by 8, 200th customer by 9, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our Stay Connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus Packs only. T's and C's apply. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.